Today we embark on a chilling journey through the ethereal realm of prophecy in the Bible and the ancient Near East. From mysterious visions to eerie symbolic acts, we are going to explore the otherworldly dimensions of divine communication. This is what your pastor didn't tell you. Today I'm on with ancient Near Eastern scholar Dr. Jonathan Stockel. How are you doing today, Dr. Stockel? Hello, I'm I'm very well. Thank you for having me here, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to our chat. Awesome. No, this is this would be really really great to to hear your thoughts on this topic. So, just can you give us a background of yourself, your scholarship, and how you came to this topic? Sure. Um, I'll I'll sort of go the wrong way around because that's easier, in a way. Um, I. Um, I'm a scholar of Hebrew and Aramaic and of the ancient Middle East more, more broadly, uh, including the Hebrew Bible, focusing on the Hebrew Bible. Um, and um, I got here in a convoluted way. Um, I grew up in, um, in a Christian household. Um, so my father was a bishop and my mom is an organist. So church was uh, fairly present, um, but... Uh, in, a, in, a, in a very liberal Lutheran, Northern German setting uh, that may be different uh, from uh, setting elsewhere. Um, and um, after I, I finished high school, I definitely, most definitely did not want to do anything related to the ancient Middle East or theology or Hebrew or anything like that. <laughs> I wanted to do physics, but I then spent a year in Brazil and um really liked uh, the more involved social work that I did there. Um, in British context, I would call it a year abroad. Um, and um, I then decided that actually theology might be a good good thing to study. And I started theology uh, and my very first lecture was with the excellent expert on uh, the Samaritans and the Samaritan Pentateuch, Professor Stefan Schorch. And um, he just managed to awaken a love for Hebrew and other Semitic languages in me. Mm. And uh, so rather than doing a sort of standard theology degree, I did any anything to do with Semitic languages that I could somehow do. Um, and so under the cover of a theology degree, I actually did a Semitics degree. Um, and uh, I planned to go to Jerusalem for a year. Uh, that was in for the year 2002-2003. But those who are old enough to remember may remember that uh, in early 2002, a bomb went up uh, in the Sinatra Cafe on Mount Scopus. So the organization with which I was going to go got cold feet and stopped our year from going. And instead, I went to Oxford to do a one-year master's there. And I quite liked it there. So I stayed on and did my PhD there. And because everything in Oxford has to be slightly different, they can't possibly call it a PhD. They call it a DPhil, um, and yeah, I, I did a DPhil in Hebrew and Assyriology, uh, and focusing on the topic of uh, prophecy and divination. And I got to that topic actually through working as a student assistant while I was still in Berlin. Um, and I attended a conference that was on prophetic texts, and Martin Nissen uh, was one of the speakers there, uh, and. Uh, while he was talking, he thought, oh, this sounds really cool. I want to know more about this. 
I want to really get into this. And uh, so I started reading lots and got my topic in a way through him. And uh, yeah, uh, since my PhD, I've, I've broadly stayed in that area. So I, I work on um, the Hebrew Bible within the context uh, of the ancient Middle East. Uh, you will sometimes hear me say ancient Eras, ancient Middle East uh, is a debate on terminology, uh, like in so many other fields. Uh, I'm trying to, to teach myself to uh, use the term ancient Middle East, but it's uh, to be taken in, in a generous spirit. Um, and um, I've, I've changed focus slightly and work mostly on things to do with priests, but I'm still in the broad context of religious institutions um and i've not stopped working on prophecy divination to some extent magic that sort of neck of the woods awesome yeah that's really really interesting stuff so as we talked about before a lot of people come into this conversation with preconceived notions of what prophecy is so let's start with just a base definition and what you consider prophecy to be um it's a difficult question that um, because for different purposes, you might want to use different definitions. Um, in the scholarship working on prophecy in the ancient Middle East, uh, prophecy is normally defined as um, a, the phenomenon by which a deity <coughs> communicates with humans using another human as an intermediary. And that intermediary is the prophet. So the, the prophetess becomes like a sort of spokesperson for a deity. And because it's not a, because I said the historical study rather than the theological study, um, obviously not just uh, that Christian and Jewish God can have prophets. Even the Bible seems to be aware of that, but <clears throat> other gods do too. Uh, and uh, the phenomenon is not super common, but it's, it's well enough established um, as such. And obviously, the way that this works, um, so we, when we study prophecy in particular, um, it is a means of communicating from the divine to humanity um, that is initiated by the deity rather than by humans. Humans can have other means of uh, figuring out what gods want, and um, they use, for example, uh, something that we call hepatoscopy, that is when you slaughter uh, an animal and then look at the shape of the lamb and depending on the shape of the sorry the liver of the lamb it's usually lamb um, um depending on the shape of the liver you then interpret what the answer of the deity was to your question hmm. um and we therefore use the term divination as an umbrella term for all forms of um information that is passed between gods and humans um, so a little bit different from what people might be used to. I know that uh, often, in particularly in Christian circles, the term divination has a very negative connotation, but it's not understood as either negative or positive here, but simply as a form of humans getting access to information from mm -hmm. the divine sphere. Yeah. Um, and prophecies is then just one of the possible ways in which this can be achieved. Yeah, that makes sense. So where do we get what we know about prophecy um, from this time period. So, you know, clearly the, the, the Hebrew Bible and what, what else 
is it other texts, other countries or nations mm -hmm. around that same time period? Yeah. So the, the Hebrew Bible obviously contains uh, both texts about prophets, but also prophetic messages. And um, as a source, this is from the first millennium BCE. So from the oldest texts that are prophetic in the Bible are probably round about the eighth century, depending on quite what you define uh, in those terms, um, and then go on right through. Um, we have a large corpus of prophetic texts from the Neo-Syrian state archives. We are talking about the seventh century here, seventh century BCE. Uh, so quite clearly at the Neo-Syrian court, um, there was the awareness that deities, and it's mostly forms of Ishtar and Ashur, communicated to the king through well, prophets. Then we have another large corpus that is from the city of Mari. Uh, and Mari was destroyed in the 18th century BCE, so a good thousand years earlier, a bit more. Uh, and because it was destroyed, also its archives got, got destroyed. Hmm. And that for us means that we could find them because normally archives only kept the last 50 or so years and then tablets would either be destroyed or uh, reused uh, by making uh, the clay wet again, and then you could effectively uh, uh -huh. reuse them. So it is only through the act of destruction that we actually find something. So they're um, disasters, our luck in this case. Yeah. Um, and there we have another sort of 50 odd texts. Mostly they're letters containing messages from priests, they're not, uh, from prophets. They're not written by them, prophets themselves, but by scribes. Uh, and they're mostly sent to the king to inform the king about prophetic activity. And then there are a few administrative texts as well, where uh, prophets get paid, uh, which is quite useful because um, letters are one thing, but uh, administrations are particularly good at uh, logging things that happen. Uh, and as they happen, there's usually, often there's some sort of uh, notice that is made in administrations and that gives us a hint, no administration pays something out unless it has to. Um, so. We, we, we see how this operated a little bit, at least, in shapes in uh, through these administrative texts. Then we have a handful of inscriptions uh, from the Aramean-speaking world. Deir um, Allah is probably the most famous. Um, people uh, reading the Bible might be familiar with a certain Balaam. And the same character is also the central character in the Deir Allah inscription. Um, and it's a fascinating, complex, difficult text. Uh, anybody who hasn't read it yet, and there are good translations out there, um, go and, and go and do it. it is, it's a fun, it's weird, it's strange. Uh, the reconstructions are not entirely certain because the text itself was inscribed on a plaster wall in a building. And uh, the text is probably 9th or 8th century BCE. And uh, when it was discovered, actually, by uh, colleagues of mine here in Leiden um, in the 20th century, that plaster wall had collapsed largely. So uh, the current shape of the inscription is a reconstruction. Often that works quite well because, like a puzzle, those pieces fit together, but not all of them do. And therefore, sometimes the order is a little bit unclear. Huh. And then the, the final uh, larger piece of uh, evidence or corpus of evidence that we have is from ancient Greece, um, where the situation is slightly 
more muddled than in the Middle East and antiquity, uh, simply because various forms of divination were integrated with each other where they were nicely separated out in Mesopotamia, which mm. I hasten to add was the center of civilization at the time. Um, we tend to focus on Greece as the sort of high center of civilization. And it, it's not untrue, but in terms of scholarship, in terms of writing, there was a whole lot more going on in the Middle East than there was in Greece. Uh, it's just that the Greek material, because it was copied and copied and copied, we have a whole lot more of it, um, uh, at least as part of, of Western culture. Um, cuneiform, of course, has only been discovered uh, in, the, in the 19th century for real, or deciphered at least. Uh, and um, therefore things are, um, yeah, slightly more complex or yeah. less well known. Uh, and we have a lot more administrative texts than literary texts. Um, those are the broader corpora. Um, there's a bit of a debate going on at the moment to what degree we can include Egyptian texts in the category of prophecy. And here the definition matters uh, a great deal. There are some texts that look very much like the Deir Allah text, that Aramaic text that I mentioned, but they, they, the speaker doesn't claim to have any information from the divine. The speaker is just, just knows this stuff. Um, and you could say, well, this could be prophetic. Yes, it could be. Um, we just don't know. Um, and we do have formula being used, such as thus says, and then the name of a deity. Um, but they tend to be out of the latest phases when most of the material uh, in Greece is written in Greek. So we're talking about the Hellenistic period, uh, which is starts in the late 4th century BCE mm -hmm. with Alexander and then Actually, most of the texts are second century, so they're really quite quite late indeed. That doesn't mean that they're not valid, that they're not important, um, but they also don't they don't seem to operate in quite the same way. It's a little bit like in Greece itself, uh, where it's not entirely clear: is this really prophecy? Is this some form of um, reading of how smoke rises, and you read the divine will out of that? Or and astrology isn't isn't that big a thing uh, in Greece? It's big in Mesopotamia, and it's also relatively big in uh, in Hellenistic Egypt, but nothing in comparison to what's going on in Mesopotamia. So we just don't know the means by which uh, these divine messages were, were arrived at. So I would be more comfortable of speaking of divination without being nailed down to, to prophecy, but I don't have any, um, any objection, as in I can't prove the negative, but that is, of course, itself impossible. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Okay, so, uh, and just a general idea of wh what do these texts talk about? Is mm -hmm. there, I would assume there's a broad range of different ways that prophets are spoken about or things are prophesied, but yeah. just a general idea of, of what these texts talk about. Yeah, I think looking at the two larger groups of texts from Mari. By the way, that's on the Euphrates, on the border between Syria and uh, Iraq in modern terms of geography. Deir Ezzor, you may have seen that in the news while it was occupied by Daesh, um, and where they wrought terrible destruction and uh, killed many people. Um, hmm. These archives are both royal archives, and therefore they will reflect their situatedness. So. Um, they're not archives by temples, they're not archives by resistance groups. These are archives 
that were made in the interest of the state. And the state uh, wanted, in particular, information where there's either something good or something negative, uh, something that they needed to know to make their decisions uh, of statecraft. So we have a lot of messages of support for the king, uh, and we have a lot of messages uh, about shortcomings, about um, certain temples were supplied with with uh, resources, uh, not enough pure water, or another temple uh, keeps, keeps uh, harping on about a particular estate uh, that it was promised. Um, and it seems like that estate was promised as part of the accession to the... Uh, to the throne of of the king of Mari, a certain chap called Zimri Lim. Um, so there seems to have been a bit of sort of quid pro quo kind of uh, affair. Um, the same is true mostly for the uh, Aramaic inscriptions or uh, the broader, I should say, Northwest Semitic uh, world of inscriptions. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the Zakur inscription, even though we don't quite understand because it is too broken to actually be entirely certain what's going on there. Um, uh, the Der Allah inscription is one of these texts uh, that are quite common in ancient Middle Eastern texts projecting into the future, or indeed that are often written after that predicted future has already happened. Um, we sometimes call it the inverted world, where everything is terrible, where that which is we or that what they conceived of as the good life was just topsy turvy. Uh, so the the birds aren't singing anymore, and uh, the cattle aren't grazing, and the sun has a funny color, and there's no rain. Um, all this is often done, and we have this explicit in literary texts. So texts that where we know that they're not, uh, they don't go back to prophetic oracles, or it's very unlikely at least that they do, but that are written using the trope of a prophet to legitimize the rule of a certain ruler. Uh, we have these from Hellenistic Mesopotamia. Uh, the, the two most common or most famous ones are the uh, Uruk and Marduk prophecies, where a new ruler is being uh, hailed as, as the right good guy who's going to make the world good again, because, of course, he can then turn the world from the topsy-turvy uh, kind of arrangement into the right way up again. And um, these prophetic texts construct their reality in this way that they say, oh, and the, the world will all go all topsy-turvy, and then a sort of savior figure will come, turning the world the right way up again. Um, and yeah, the Deir Allah text works in that uh, one of the Egyptian texts that could or could might not be prophetic uh, works that way. Um, and um, we do obviously have also a few texts in the Bible that hint at that sort of uh, world upside down uh, arrangement. Hmm. And yeah, that is really most of the time that we, we, we hear that uh, in those administrative texts, we have a few simpler cases of, um, well, and this prophet gets a silver ring or a, a garment for their services. Uh, and so we know that they were employed, um, or at least temporarily employed. Um, and we know that they quite often operated in in and around temples and or palaces. But I think that is largely because they are linked to the monarchy, at least in the sources that we have, because, of course, those archives uh, 
um, prefer or uh, collect information that has to do with, with kings. Uh, and so prophecy that might have existed next and in different next to this world and in a different world, we simply don't see because we don't have those archives because normal people didn't need to write anything down. It was only um, temples, royal courts, state archives, and then a few uh, very rich traders and or institutions where there's a need of it, maintaining information over a period of time. Most things just happened ad hoc uh, and people would just remember them uh, rather than writing them down. Mm. And so we don't, we don't, we simply don't know if a, right. if a prophet came and told me to sell my house uh, and move somewhere else uh, simply because I would not write that down. Only if, <laughs> if, if he tells that to the king, would that be written down? Mm. Yeah, that makes things difficult um, because you only have one <laughs> select. Yeah, right. You have one select view of things. So that, that makes things fun for sure. Yeah. So is there like a, a typical description of what a prophet did or or is it like their occupation, their job? You said they got paid. So it sounds mm. like it, right? Um, that is a bit of a debate in scholarship in the moment. Okay. Um, I think that um, so traditionally we have this image of people just being overcome with the spirit of God and then talking uh, irrespective of what they used to do, thinking here of, of the figure of Amos in particular, that famous um, interlude in, in Amos 7. Um, but um, it seems that and you can actually see that in that interlude in Amos 7 as well, that there seems to be a bit of a quid pro quo even there that um, whether or not you're a full-time prophet or you're a part-time prophet, or, and I would like to add this, this category, I used to, in my own book, I, on my own scholarship, I think of this category of uh, lay prophet. It's not a great term, but it sort of describes what I mean. So um, people who... Um, who were regarded as uh, as a mouthpiece of a deity, whether or not that was their real job. So the, the term prophet is not, I think, necessarily a job title. It could be. So you could be employed as a prophet. There are obviously various terms for that in those original languages. Um, but um, you could also simply be overcome by the spirit of the particular deity you were speaking for, mm. or group, sometimes even group of deities. Um, and um, we don't get to hear what your actual profession is. Um, in two cases, we we have uh, terms for female servant. Um, so they seem to perhaps not have been prophets, but of course that term itself, female servant, could have been a prophetic title in the particular context at a certain sanctuary, it, that is possible. Not necessarily likely, but possible, because those okay. times obviously shift about a bit. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I think that that, that uh, unlike other professions such as a hepatoscoper, so a proper diviner, that was a actual job. Okay. Um, but profit could be a job, could be something that just happens, depending mm. on the term that's used. So that sometimes are, are reserved for the professional people. Mm. Uh, we get um, uh, plenty of references to prophetic 
activity happening without any of the titles being used. Mm. That indicates that that this was simply a possibility in, in their world. Mm. Gotcha. Yeah, so in regards to um, other you know, descriptions about them, is there any other things that are commonly just, you know, applied to, you know, what a, a prophet typically looks like? Uh, not really. Um, Martin Isinen, uh thinks that most prophets were active in temples uh, because there is a certain preponderance of temple and occultic settings for prophets. And this wouldn't be terribly surprising since that, that since temples simply are the sites where deities are thought to be present in the human world. So it sort of kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, a lot depends on how and what you count in what way. So I, the way that he counts the data and the way that I count the data doesn't quite come to the same result. And so I think that there is a preponderance for activity in, in temples or temple-like settings, but this is by no means necessary and always the case. So mm. quite often it, uh, it, it simply isn't. Uh, and therefore I don't think it, you need to have that reference. There is one very nice uh, reference, however, in one Mari text about um, a female prophet for whom a term gets used where we don't quite understand what it means. And uh, we get a reference to, to her hairstyle, uh, it being quite crazy. Um, what this means in reality, we don't know, but I quite like the idea of somebody with, with super messy hair. Um, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit, I don't know, I've just rewatched um, the, uh, um, what's it called? Uh, Dirk Gently, the American Dirk Gently version on Netflix. Um, and uh, there's a female killer uh, in, in that. And that's sort of my image of this particular female prophet. Um, slightly crazy, slightly out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that maybe that's a good little intersection there. So um, in, in the biblical text and in some places outside of it, you do get this interesting thing where a lot of times these prophets are either crazy-ish, Ezekiel comes to mind, or um, I don't know, like, they, you know, runs around without clothes on, stuff like that, where something's weird's going on. And and it, uh, uh, Marty Nissan, he said that it seems like there's some association where it's like, well, these people are doing these crazy things. They must be something supernatural must be going on. Uh, can you can you talk about um, what we know about this idea? And is, is this a true one? And w what can we draw from that? Whether it's true, that's a good one. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to sort of slowly, slowly sidle up to that uh, question. Um, clearly, just as much as today, uh, the ancient world people sh presented in, in various forms of ways, and some are more standard and others are less standard. For me, uh, hanging out naked uh, for several uh, months is not the sort of normal kind of thing that one does in polite society. Um, and I think the fact that they recorded that way in, in the biblical text also implies that it, they find it odd. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, it is attributed to characters 
who are already identified as prophetic. And therefore, mm. it is understood as we use the term sign act in scholarship, uh, namely behavior that is meant to express in in a lived version a sort of divine message. So rather than speaking out in words, they speak out in the way that they behave. Huh. We do have um, one reference to something that could be akin in a Maori text where a prophet uh, requests a sheep only to tear it apart alive, um, oh. which is a very gruesome uh, kind of prophetic display. Um, I most certainly uh, would be taken aback by it. And I think that is the intention of, of this whole affair. Um, and then they they make a, in one for a better word, a sort of pun. Um, they look at, uh, so the term for uh, a disaster uh, and the word for eating are derived from the same root etymologically. And this prophet makes a pun out of that, this disaster for the sheep and the eating of the dead sheep um, stands in or is a sign that a disaster will come and that the gods will behave towards us like I have just behaved towards this sheep. Hmm. And to me, that indicates that at least with figures that are identified as prophetic by their societies, um, and of course, there's a lot of anthropological work on certain of, of how this seem, tends to operate in uh, human societies. Um, the um, yeah, if, if if a figure has been recognized as a prophet, as a messenger from the beyond, messenger of of, of the divine, then um, what they do, and if they do something really extraordinary, that has to be interpreted in some shape or form in order to be fit into the particular worldview that these people are in, uh, and then yeah, hanging out naked or tearing a sheep apart becomes a sign for a divine message. Or indeed, in Ezekiel's case, hanging out on one side for 150 days and then for 40 days on the other, etc. Like they, they do really very strange things. Uh, so uh, whether or not this precise behavior is actually what happened historically at each and every time, that's a different question, and that's difficult to say. But um, I quite like to, I quite like the criterion that my doctoral supervisor uh, kept asking me um, when when writing my PhD, and that is, if texts invent material, it still has to be believable to the audience, because you don't write these things if they're not believable enough to them, um, because then you lose your audience. So there's no purpose that is being served. And I think that's a really good question to ask yourself, uh, or, or criterion to, to stop and think about. Um, and so I think that is a way that, that people rationalized really curious and odd behavior for which we today might find medical explanations. Um, yeah, I, I'll leave it there. Um, I think that might give you an answer to, to the question whether this, this happened. So I can't say in every single occurrence uh, whether this is something that happened historically or not, but as a thing, yes, I think that's pretty clear that something like these things, these sort of mad 
forms of behavior or what we would consider mad uh, did happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we'll have to go back to that topic about the the historicity question. Um, so specifically on on prophecy, I mean, how did it occur? Do we have any descriptions of that? You know, most people, at least that I talked to, would consider consider it like a, a trance, like you you get a a vision downloaded from God, and, and you're just you're you're just speaking it, and lots of times people don't have control. And is that how we is that the picture we get in the ancient Near East or Middle East, as you would say? Um, it largely is, but that's partly because that's what we're looking for, um, right? So um, biblical depictions influence the way that um, the broader phenomenon was classified, the phenomenon of what people students of religion more broadly, so religious studies, would define as ecstatic behavior. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of research, anthropological research, uh, into this ecstatic behavior. But then, of course, we are automatically looking for behavior that is ecstatic. Uh, in other words, it is baked into our definition. Um, and therefore, we obviously find it when we're looking for it. Um, in non-biblical texts from the ancient Middle East, um, we rarely hear precisely how the message is arrived at, that the person gives. But um, occasionally, we do get references to altered states of consciousness. Um, well, we know that altered state of consciousness is a thing in the religions or the religious world of the ancient Middle East, full stop. You have specialists whose job it is to go into trance. And there's another uh, difference between me and Professor Nissen in here, um, that there's a certain term that translates as somebody who's in frenzy, in ecstasy. Uh, and he thinks that it's a term for a professional prophet. And I think it's a term that describes somebody who, whose job it is, is to be ecstatic in, in temple worship. Uh, and their being, their acting as prophets is incidental to that role of, of ecstasy. Uh, we know that there are other professionals whose job it is to be ecstatic. Um, we don't have any attestations for them going into trance or into, into uh, prophetic utterances, but maybe they did. We just don't have evidence for it. That is always possible in, in the study of the ancient Middle East. Um, in performance, um, most often the term that is used um, is of verbs of speaking, shouting, uh, and indeed of standing up. Um, so simply getting up in a temple and saying something. Um, whether these, there, there's no normally there's no reference to them being in an ecstatic state at the time. Does this mean that they weren't in an ecstatic state when they received the message and now just simply hand it on, like one receives a letter and then, okay, you've read the letter, I now hand it on as a sort of messenger type figure, or whether it means that they're still in a trance or whether it means that they were never in a trance? Uh, we don't know, um, simply because the evidence doesn't quite allow us to say that. Um, with the slight exception, there's a possible exception in 
two ritual texts from Mari again, um, where prophetic message uh, is uh, comes about um, if a certain kind of music is played, um, and um, if 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 they, 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 these professionals, muhu uh, they're called, um, if they go into a trance. But that is the the only possible place where those things are mentioned together, and it's in a broken context. Um, a lot is open to interpretation, um, and so we actually don't know what what's going on uh, precisely. In fact, the order of things seems to be inverted. So the, uh, the music is only played if the prophetic message comes, or sorry, if the trance is is uh, reached at. But we don't actually then get a message that is meant to be delivered. It's uh, it is us reading into into the text that there is a, then a message that is to follow. And it's true, there could be one, but uh, there is no, because it's a ritual text, it's a description of how ritual is meant to be taken or carried out. Mm. Uh, we simply don't, that's not information that is contained in it. Yeah. Um, and the same is true in, in most biblical texts about um, prophets and prophetic messages. Uh, the, the closest we get is our, our impressions such as the spirit of the Lord was upon me or upon the person, um, something like that. Um, and they are expressions that in other contexts would signify that something is different and we would probably understand that as an altered state of consciousness. But whether that means that a person acts totally crazily and uh, is ecstatic in that sense, or whether it just means they're sitting in their corner and uh, listening and watching a different film to the one that we are watching, namely having a vision or um, just having an oral phenomenon where they just hear something uh, that is obviously not recorded because the, our texts are not interested in that. They, For us, these questions are important and interesting, but to the people who wrote these texts, they took that as as granted that it was yeah, understood how this was operating in, in their cultures and therefore they didn't write it down. And mm -hmm. that's annoying for us, but um, that's our problem, not theirs. Yeah. 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 It's crazy how much of the questions that we were asking is, is not clearly not something they, they were concerned about and that makes things difficult for sure. So, yeah. um, there, there is an interesting question there that you, you briefly mentioned, which is the idea that what is being written down isn't necessarily always what, I guess, happened. And that's obviously a difficult question. So um, in, in, in Marty's book, he talked about how the, the writer of, you know, describing the, the prophet or the prophetic section or whatever, that he would not only have you know the the ability to edit the text just a little bit or or change the story just a little bit to make it more understandable to his audience but that of course you know makes things um difficult because it's like okay how much is he changing the story and um you know there's all kinds of th questions that go on with that so could you talk about that idea in general like specifically as a scholar what what are you thinking about when when you're trying to i guess i don't know maybe if you, if you 
I don't even know if you do, but if you do, what, when you try to reconstruct what originally happened, mm. what is, what's going on in your mind there? Mm. That's a good question. And it is a question that I ask myself. Um, I want to have answers to that question. I don't necessarily have a great deal of confidence in either my own or other scholars or indeed non-scholars um, reconstructions, simply because we we can't see back far behind the texts that we have. The evidence only goes so far. Um, so Marty is absolutely right. Um, there's no question about that, uh, about the fact that the texts which we have of prophetic events are always a step removed. Um, they could preserve the words of the prophetic figure, what we call faithfully, the category is, I think, slightly problematic, um, but nonetheless, what in our view would be considered faithfully. Um, but they could also change them slightly, or they could just simply have misremembered ever so slightly. Um, I mean, if if you sit in a temple and your job is to wait for somebody to uh, have a moment and and uh, transmit a prophetic message and then yeah. then 10 minutes later you have your wetted clay tablets and you need to write down the words well you might make a mistake right uh, so th i'm not talking necessarily about bad will or of uh, editorial interests although those may also at times have played a role um but simply human memory uh, and context right um uh, i don't know whether you had that uh, experience um but uh it's it's actually a well-studied phenomenon uh, about among linguists but in particular linguists of of music um and i remember it from my own childhood that uh actually uh, in a sort of musical advent calendar on a record we were allowed to hear one track more every day um and there was one particular song and me and my sister simply misheard the words uh, we reconstructed them slightly differently to what they were, simply because we didn't know what they should be. Uh, and then years later, when we figured out what they actually were, we said, oh, no, how could this possibly have happened? And this is a, yeah, it's a well-known phenomenon that, that the human brain will try to reconstruct sounds that it hears into meaningful words. Mm. And so if you slightly mishear something, you might then reconstruct the following sound as well and then reconstruct that sound or the, the, mm. the message that you are meant to write down uh, slightly differently to what it, it happened. So there's already a change in there. And there's a very nice article by Karel van der Torn uh, precisely about this, this process. Um, it's quite old by now. I think it's 1986 or something like that, 87. So uh, quite a while ago. Um, mm. On top of that, you do have obviously the the possibility of of authors writing texts in the voice of a prophetic figure, and I mentioned those the the Marduk and Uruk prophecies from Hellenistic Mesopotamia already. There's a very beautiful um, novella from Egypt called the Wenamun story uh, about an Egyptian official who goes on a journey on a trip to organize some uh, wood for the construction of a temple and in order to get that he needs to go to uh, the Levant um, and there encounters a prophetic figure 
Um, and in all of these cases, what we have are literary imagination of how a prophet might appear. So they, like a modern author, might write about a football player or a news announcer, uh, and that could have, if it's well written, it has various similitudes, right? We believe the character uh, as a as a real figure, at least within the world of that text. And in a similar way, that works also for the these Uruk Maduk prophecies, but also the Wenamun story. Um, the same is also true for some biblical texts, some more obviously, some less obviously. And because the biblical texts have such a long period of transmission and of copying and recopying and recopying, which is something that really does make them different to certainly the Mesopotamian texts, which were written on clay. And in most cases, you don't have too many copies of the same texts. And as soon as you mm -hmm. have different copies, we also tend to see slightly different editions. Um, so we see similar sort of things starting to, to come about. Mm. Um, I'm thinking uh, of uh, a, a term that has been bandied about um, in biblical scholarship for a while. It's called inner biblical interpretation. Um, and it's a really useful concept to try to understand what goes on in quite a bit of biblical literature, because biblical literature is quite self-referential. It does pick up things from outside, but it also plays around with what you find in other biblical texts, uh, simply because the people who copied these texts knew them all um, and then were reminded of something. And then particularly clever ones of them might feel tempted to write something in addition to what they had in their text already, because they weren't yet considered unchanging holy words that one were only allowed to copy. This was what we call living literature. Um, and that's how you you get this the, the growth of texts, um, and um, this is sometimes slightly difficult to communicate uh, to people who are not within biblical studies how this might happen. Uh, but um, it is the, the traces of it, even even though we might disagree about the specific verse that might have been added or um, things that have been taken out, etc. Um, most of biblical scholarship, uh, academic biblical scholarship, agrees that this is a thing that happens, that does occur, and um, it explains how we get from what is likely in the beginning a very short utterance by a prophet to these immensely long books with immensely, they're not just collected short sawings, but sometimes you have these immensely long and elaborate oracles and you have these whole stories about what prophets do and um when people ask me how i can be so sure about the the, the beginning in, in a short thing um i can't be entirely sure uh, that, that is absolutely true um but we have exactly one prophetic oracle on a manuscript that is from a, a late uh well very early sixth century bce um, and that is on a Lachish letter. These are letters from um, the ancient uh, Judean city of Lachish shortly before its destruction. And uh, the, the situation is militarily very difficult, to say the least. And there's a prophet that occurs, Navi, who's mentioned. And we get exactly one word from this prophet, and that word is beware. Uh, that's, all. that's it. 
Hishamir. Um, it's generally speaking, beware is, is a good bit of advice. Uh, if you are in a hopeless military situation, then it's not going to help you terribly far. Um, but that, that's that's the message that we have, and that is the the one Judean prophetic text from the context and on a historically uh, contemporaneous piece of evidence that we possess. Um, people often point to the Greek sphere as a as a comparator, as something to compare things with, um, and there's a big debate about how the, the famous Pythia at Delphi announced her oracles, whether this was in perfectly shaped hexameters or whether this was in non-understandable, a bit like speaking in tongues. Um, and uh, we, we obviously don't know uh, which way around. Both is attested in, in the literature and um, you can you can make good arguments for either being primary uh, to the other. Um, and it's likely that this whole thing just changed over time as well. And we know from other ecstatic forms of religion that speaking perfectly formed verse is not a rare thing, but neither is what we would consider speaking in, in tongues and uh, incoherent syllables. Um, so, yeah. Um, but when perfectly formed poems are announced, they tend to be reasonably short, one verse, sort of four to eight lines kind of things, not in Isaiah scroll, um, which is massively long, right? Um, and the idea and the demonstrability of the literary growth, I think, is in itself undeniable, even if we might quibble here and there about the precise verse. Hmm. Yeah, that's it's kind of crazy to to think of that in our context today. So, do we have any texts in prophecy? that you know of where it seems like the you know the event occurs and then the text we have is written afterwards saying hey this is gonna happen but it's like it's written as if it was written before the thing actually happened do we have anything like that ah uh, you mean like a uh, yeah we, we call these ex eventu texts uh ex eventu prophecies meaning they're after or written out of the events um well i i pointed to um, those Hellenistic prophecies from Mesopotamia, um, then um, I forget the name of the wise person from Egypt. It's been a while since I've looked at it. Um, who um, could be a prophet or not. Um, uh, there you have the same setup. Um, namely, a, a, a sort of chaotic time followed by a, a new leader who uh, is being installed as a sort of savior figure. In those cases, I think it's it's fairly safe to say that this is ex eventu. And with the Marduk and Uruk prophecies, we are uh, almost entirely sure that this is the case. Um, it's slightly more difficult to, to prove with, with biblical texts, but um, most scholars would uh, attribute a large number of references to the Babylonian exile as texts that are written after that experience is in fact already mm -hmm. over. Um, because many of these texts not just include the threat of the exile as such, but also 
the announcement or the yeah the idea that it it would come to a, a fairly quick end and then these texts are less warning that this is about to happen but look this is what happened in the past uh, and this will happen to you again if, unless you follow whatever the message of the particular prophet is um there's of course no no external proof for that uh, that is that is internal to the texts themselves um i'm trying to think of a nice clear example well there's one one text um that is often said to be accidental but where i'm less certain uh, and it's it's one of my favorite texts. It's it's the episode with Hulda, um, where uh, the king sends his his people to her with his newfangled book or old book that they found during the reconstruction of the temple, and uh, they want to know whether this is the real deal, the real divine law, or whether it's something else. Um, and uh, she then prophesies. Uh, peaceful death of Josiah. Uh, and of course, Josiah then gets mortally wounded in the battle against Pharaoh Necho uh, at Megiddo, uh, but does make it back home uh, and dies safely home, as it were. But of course, the, the mortal wound is inflicted uh, at the, in battle, so anything but safe and sound. Um, and um, I share the view of those who think that this is an oracle that didn't come true, um, because uh, the, the the death effectively occurred in battle, which is not a safe space uh, by anybody's description. Um, even though there is enough wriggle room for those who want to argue, know that in actual fact uh, the death then did occur at home, um, so that it wouldn't have been to be excised completely from the biblical text, because of course you can't have a prophet whose, whose uh, prediction doesn't come true, at least not in in the Book of Kings. Uh, there's another case where, where prophecies don't come true. Um, there's a, the, the most famous example of that is probably the Book of Jonah, um, with, in which Jonah, of course, goes to Nineveh and tells Nineveh that in uh, three days, 40 days. Um, I don't know what the text at the moment, what the text actually says, but number doesn't doesn't matter in this case. Um, the city will be destroyed, but of course the uh, inhabitants then repent, uh, wear sackcloth, uh, mm-hmm. and God uh, repents himself and therefore does not destroy the city. And of course we know that this is all written in the idea that Nineveh then later does get destroyed in the world of the story. Most scholars would argue that the entire text is written uh, after the exile, so way after Nineveh got destroyed. Um, and that is one of the, the, the most obvious, of, and actually quite few examples where a person identified as a prophet makes a prediction that then doesn't come true and they're still considered a prophet, both in text and in tradition, in spite of uh, what we find in Deuteronomy 13 that limits prophethood to those who... Um, accurately predict the the future but i think what we have there is a debate a theological debate about how prophecy is meant to operate and we see this same debate also in uh, some 
other ancient Middle Eastern texts occurring. Um, and I think um, different contexts might have asked for different answers in antiquity, just as we are able to hold conflicting views on the same matter in different contexts. Ancient intellectuals were also able to do that. Uh, and in some cases, uh, the predicted future needed to come true. And in other cases, it is precisely uh, the warning that is the the deal. So when when Nineveh doesn't get destroyed in the book of Jonah, we can safely say that the, the message wasn't meant to say, well, you guys have had it. I will just wipe you out. Uh, because what's the purpose of that, right? There's not, no, no purpose is being served by that uh, unless the Ninevites then can repent and change their ways and then don't get, uh, don't get destroyed, hmm. killed. So um, if, you, if you take a sort of Deuteronomy 13 perspective too literally, all forms of divination, including prophecy, lose their, their purpose. All that you then have uh, or that you then end up with is a deity that tells you, I told you so. Um, and I think that is theologically much more problematic and difficult to deal with, but also historically, um, than uh, a deity who might not always use the same definition of how divination in general and prophecy more specifically operate in practice. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I've, I've read a few books recently on how prophecy, according to these scholars, was conditional um, mm. in, in some regards. Mm. Um, so I don't know how that ties into this conversation. I'm no expert on the topic. That's not basically it. Uh, I, I, I'm one of those people who think that um, that um, even though it might not look conditional in the way that the message is conceived or transmitted, uh -huh. the idea behind it is that it is conditional. And we see this um, in divinatory texts more broadly, uh, the way that uh, if, for example, if you're uh, asking the deity, should I go to war, um, then you need to uh, not just ask once, but you ask three times, and then you take the best out of three. Um, and if you're clever, you ask the question, not should I go to war, but you say, should I go to war tomorrow? Um, because then you can ask tomorrow, go again. If the answer was no, but you really wanted to go, you can then go and ask the question again for two days or in a week. Um, um, so that there's some some wriggle room. Um, but we also know of, of the inverse. Uh, so there's a ritual that we know from, and particularly from, from the Neo-Syrian period, so first half of the first millennium BCE, the so-called substitute king ritual. Um, and at the New Year festival, each year an astrological omen was taken, what would happen that year. And if that omen would predict the death of the king, one way of dealing with it would be temporarily to crown somebody else king, to wine and dine them, and then a hundred days later to execute them. Um, because then the prediction comes true, right? The king then is dead. But the real king isn't dead, which is very much in the real king's interest. So you effectively have a theology that is similar to that uh, that which we found or find in Deuteronomy 13 um, that leads to the execution of of a member 
uh, of Neo-Syrian society every so often. This is not a regular thing uh, that they do all the time. But against other rituals, if you have wriggle room, sorry, other predictions, if you have wriggle room built in your question, well, then you can um, ask the question again. Sometimes if, if predictions are too bad, you can use uh, a form of, of ritual called namburbu, um, which is, yeah, a sort of warding off ritual with which you can uh, defend yourself against ill portents that, that are to come. Um all this shows that that depending on the context and on mm. divinatory method, etc., uh, things are much more flexible. And depending on, yeah, as I said, the context um, as to which particular form of construction of the uh, infallibility of of divination and prophecy in particular um, come is is at play. And I mean, if you look at Deuteronomy eighteen, it seems to be slightly scared by that as well because it adds extra definitions around it because if a prophet who is not of Adonai not of the ancient Israelite and Judean God who predicts something and it comes true are they then a real prophet this is not good we don't want that said the authors of Deuteronomy 18 and therefore built in the category that this only that, that the message itself is also also underlies a certain criterion of protection namely it needs to be concordant as an, an agreement with um presumably uh, with the message of of god um mm. which uh, presumably in the context of deuteronomy 18 is deuteronomy itself um yeah and uh, therefore uh, prophecy ceases to be a a real living uh thing because what prophets tend to do historically is to say stuff that is not necessarily in agreement uh, with a particular yeah, right. literature. Um, that's just how the the, the thing operates. And um, Deuteronomy 18 effectively rules those guys that it doesn't like out. Um, yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I did read how a lot of the ancient Near Eastern texts that we have don't or rarely ever speak against the king. Mm. And it's like, oh, what's that? what an interesting coincidence there. Um, <laughs> well, quite. Um, there's one one nice example of a, of a text where, and it is actually an Amtu, uh, a female servant, who speaks in support of another person who might become king. Um, but that whole of, there's a good reason why this particular text is kept um, and it's it's a it's a really interesting uh, setup. Uh, there's a nice piece, nice article by Eckhart Fram on on that whole uh, collocation of of things. I think it's just called the Sassi affair, but I fear it's in German, so it might not be <laughs> the most easily accessible. Um, the uh, in, in short, what he's there, there's a whole lot of text about this potential pretender to the king. Uh, to the throne, uh, and it appears that this potential pretender is in fact a sort of secret agent working on behalf of the king, and so this this prophet's message, in a way, is is something to um, bring about broader support for this contender. In bracket again, secret service on the king's payroll, um, and the whole idea is to 
get people out of the woodwork who were working against the king. Um, and by giving them a sort of figurehead, uh, the king provided them with, with a person around which to gather, and then he could simply pick them out one by one. Um, so that, um, yeah, this, this secret agent Sassy could be uh, a sort of a first record or the, the first preserved record of secret service um, arrangements uh, uh, and counterinsurgency in one's own kingdom uh, that we, we still have. We we don't know precisely what goes on, but it's it's nonetheless it's a it's a fun context, uh, fun fun right. context. But yeah, in that context, awesome. it makes sense. Mm, yeah. So, so uh, have a couple more questions here. Cool. I'm assuming you still have time. Uh, with that being said, before we we talk about those, I do want to ask you what is some resources that you would recommend people check out, and mm -hmm. specifically about your work. What are you doing right now? Is there anything that you people want or you want people to know about hmm. um the first point of reference that i would give to people interested in this broader field is uh, an essay or essay a book um in the sbl series writings from the ancient world uh, that was edited by martin Nissenin, um which collects prophetic texts simply texts that are in some shape or form related to prophecy from the ancient Middle East, i.e. texts that are not biblical, because most people have access to a Bible, uh, either in physical form or online. Uh, and these texts are often published in obscure places, uh, only available in academic libraries. And this SBL book, um, now out in the second edition, um, is, is a really useful and handy reference work. Uh, I use it a lot. Um, Obviously, uh, I sometimes here and there have slightly different readings and therefore slightly different translations, but this is scholarly quabbling about relatively minor things uh, that, that matter little. It's, it's a really good reference book and really good resource. I think uh, it, it really is very helpful indeed. Um, I also think uh, really useful to get a broader understanding of how ecstatic religion works is, is a little booklet by a chap called I.M.Lewis, who was one of the great anthropologists of the 20th century. Uh, and it's simply called Ecstatic Religion. Um, I find some of his categories slightly problematic. What, what it does really well is to give an overview of how ecstatic religion works in a lot of different societies across the globe. Um, and I think in that it is really useful to open people's eyes on, on how things are possible to work, uh, not just in a Western context. Um, and if you look closely enough, even in a Western context, things operate rather differently from one place to the other. Having lived in three different, uh, four different Western European and one uh, Latin American country, things do just differ. <laughs> and that's yeah. all right. And societies operate differently. Um, so yeah, those those I think are the the most helpful uh, two relatively short guides. Um, Martin Isenen's book Ancient Divination um, is is a good one. Um, obviously, uh, as somebody who disagrees with him on on details, uh, I I could point out lots of places where I would quibble again with him, um, but uh, it's it's a it's a great book. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, there are a couple of, 
open access publications with which I've been involved that are also quite helpful. Um, and they are all in the SPL uh, ancient Near Eastern monographs uh, series, and they can simply be downloaded from the SPL Society for Biblical Literature uh, website. Um, in fact, the entire series is, is quite good. Uh, and it being open access uh, is, is very helpful. Hmm. So I, I could point people to that. Cool. Um, okay. What I do in the moment, um, that is both a good uh, and and a ever so slightly unclear question. I would say watch this space. Um, there, there, there are big things happening or going to happen uh, starting hopefully uh, at some point in 2024, um, but they're not quite uh, oven ready yet. So I, I hesitate to speak about them mm. uh, just yet. Um, I've been working quite a bit on um, texts that speak about uh, diasporic communities Jewish uh, diaspora communities in, in the ancient world. So in particular, uh, the text from Elephantina uh, and a slightly lesser extent for me, but at least as important, these texts from Al-Yahudu, uh, cuneiform texts uh, written by Babylonian officials about Jewish deportees in ancient Babylon, um, both in terms of content, but also in terms of context uh, as well as of ethics, because these texts, the elephant, uh, not the Elephantine text, but the um, Al-Yahudu texts all uh, turned up on the antiquities market uh, and are now owned by rich Western antiquities collectors, and we lack any form of physical context. Uh, oh, wow. Very nice to know precisely where they're from and in which houses they were found, uh, yeah. let alone uh, speak about the, the fact that, of course, ancient Iraqi heritage is now being housed in Western collections uh, with at least questionable or through questionable legal means. Um, but one can, can debate that for a long time. So yes, um, that as well. And I keep on uh, working and producing short pieces on in connection with prophecy and divination. I've been uh, fairly busy this time, actually. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to, to have you on, even if you've been busy. So it's great. Um, so how much time do you have left? I have about half an hour or so. Okay. All right, good. That'll work. So uh, Divine Council, this is, was um, a little bit surprising to me, although I don't know why I would yeah. think that. So in, in the biblical text, and it appears that outside the biblical text, there is a lot of scenes where it appears that the, a prophet is getting a message from an entire divine council or there's there's something going on there can you talk about what we see there mm. um also what is the divine council sure uh the divine let's put go with that way around uh there's a i, I forget again I'm, i apologize for my my lack of preparation in that regard um there is a very nice uh short saying by an ancient greek philosopher again whose name currently escapes me, um, that a horse's god would look like a horse. And uh, what this is intended to signify is that all societies imagine the broader world in which they live through the eyes of what they know. Um, so 
in a world that is monarchic where you have uh, the king and sometimes queen and, and their um, royal advisors, it makes sense to imagine the gods in a similar position vis-a-vis -vis the lower gods and vis-a-vis -vis humanity, namely as a kind of royal court with, with advisors. And uh, that's precisely the, the image that we have um, or that we get in, in the divine council scenes, be they in prophetic context or be they just in, in ritual texts where we also get mentions or references to divine councils or assemblies of gods, etc. This is simply part of how the divine, the royal divine court was imagined because, well, the authors knew what the human court looked like and they just transfer that one to one. And indeed, um, maybe I'm making a bit of a mountain out of molehill, but um, the term used for palace and temple is identical. And the etymology for this term uh, is a big house. Um, so Ekalo in Akkadian, Hechal in Hebrew, um, it, it's simply a term yeah, for, for big houses and, of course, temples and palaces were the only big houses around. And uh, palaces were understood as if they were the palaces of gods. So this is, it's not just in the divine council, this equation of human court and divine court, but this, the, the equation goes way beyond that. Um, and... Um, we, we get this... We get a sort of echo of a messenger type scene in some prophetic texts of a prophet being called in front of a divine council, getting a message that they are then meant to divulge to its human recipients, normally either the, the particular community from which the prophet comes or humanity in general, although that is often then a later stage when texts have been universalized. And uh, this, this makes perfect sense, again, in a world where um, if a king wanted to send a message to the king next door uh, or to anybody else, they would get a messenger in and tell them what to tell the addressee, and then they would go off and do that. And the same happens with deities or gods and the prophet. The prophet then simply is effectively the messenger on their behalf. Um, that image has become a little bit under fire in some scholarly circles, I still think that it works best to explain these type scenes. Um, I, I don't see how else you properly get there. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's really interesting. Wow. Okay. So maybe this is probably a question for an entire episode, but what is... Um, I mean, do we have any differences between biblical prophecy and, and extra-biblical prophecy? Um, that depends a little bit by what you mean with each of the terms that mm -hmm. you mentioned. Um, the, the main difference that I see... I think stems from the fact that biblical literature as a whole tends to operate in a slightly different way from most other ancient Middle Eastern literature in that 
it gets copied again and again and changed in that copying process uh, because it's not just a, uh, uh, an attempt to word by word copy but it's it, as i said earlier it's it's living literature certainly in the beginning um as a consequence uh or, or rather i should also start uh, state that in in the two large corpora that we have from ancient mesopotamia we of course have royal archives and therefore as we were talking about earlier it is the king's interest or the court's interest that is represented rather than somebody else's interest um it has been argued that what we get in biblical text is a sort of subaltern perspective um, simply because Israel and Judah were very much on the receiving end of Assyrian and Babylonian um, imperial policies. Uh, I'm a bit hesitant on, on that depiction and I would rather understand, uh, of, rather think of the literature that we now have in uh, biblical prophetic books as elite literature within the context of ancient Israel and Judah, uh, which itself is, of course, subaltern to Assyrian and Babylonian texts, but it is not um, at the receiving end within its own context. And so it, it, it takes on a more complex role uh, in, in this broader setup. Um, it's not just a binary, but it's a more multipolar world. Um, and uh, it reflects the opinions and views of the biblical authors and writers, which is a bit of a truism. Um, but um, it, it can say things that you would not expect to find in a um, in a in a royal archive from the Assyrian Empire, simply because the Assyrian Empire is not interested in constructing a world uh, in which either there is no king at all, or a world within which the king and his powers are very very circumscribed, um, so that you're very unlikely to get the kind of setup that you get, for example. Uh, in 1 Samuel, you have this whole back and forth about whether kingship is something good or something inherently bad. Um, and uh, in, within within the Neo-Syrian Empire, there might have been individuals who didn't like their particular king, or there might even be, have been the odd radical who thought that kingship itself was not a good thing, but their opinions were not kept in the royal archives. Uh, these were opinions by uh, figures to the fringe and very unlikely to have been written down at all, ever, but largely out of self-preservation because in a uh, oppressive society, you don't tend to write things down that might be incriminating against you. Um, however, and this is, I think, that this is where Martinissen draws a very helpful distinction. I, I really like his terminology here. He distinguishes between biblical prophecy, that is mm -hmm. prophecy as we get it in the biblical text, and ancient Hebrew prophecy, 
one can quibble about whether the word Hebrew needs to be there, whether all ancient prophets necessarily always transmitted their messages in Hebrew or could not potentially have done so in Aramaic as well, um, or mm. at a later date, indeed, in Greek uh, or other languages. But um, what he means by that is he uses it as a short form, shorthand for ancient Israelite and ancient Judean. So uh, he he would draw a distinction between ancient reality and textual reality, and I think that yeah. is a is a good distinction to draw. Not necessarily because um, there is no historical accuracy to uh, the biblical text. Quite often, we simply can't decide because we don't have the evidence. Um, but because um, we don't have enough data to contextualize the, the material. We don't have the administrative data for ancient Israel and ancient Judah that tells us how things actually operated on the ground. And we do know that the texts kept being worked on uh, by, by authors and editors up until the Hellenistic period. So a very long period of time indeed. Uh, and that ancient reality, so even for them already ancient reality, is as much as a, ref a reflection of historical accuracy. And please note the distinction I'm making between historical accuracy and truth. I, I don't venture into claiming anything about truth. I just speak about historical accuracy. Um, and uh, uh, retrojection of an ideal past, um, or the writing of an ideal past that explains, explains the present where you can have prophets who announce the exile before it happens, you, where you have prophets who can announce the end of exile before it happens um, in this literary uh, ideal rather than historically accurate depictions, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's how I would uh, respond to that question, I think. Um, in terms of ancient reality, uh, both in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, likely as well, ancient Greece, ancient Israel, Judah, ancient Ammon, ancient Moab, uh, name them. Um, you likely had prophets and prophet-like figures in most of these societies, even though we don't necessarily always have a direct evidence for that. Mm. And if you define prophecy as I have at the beginning, then there's no reason to um, spend a lot of time wondering about that um, because all of these societies had the idea of divination, all these societies had the idea of messengers. Uh, and if you marry messenger and divination, what you effectively get is a, is a prophet. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay, so, well, otherwise, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate you coming on here. Um, My pleasure entirely. Once again, um, everyone go check out uh, Dr. Stokel's work here and, and the different re references we, we mentioned earlier. Uh, but otherwise, I, I hope you have a great rest of your day.